As the astronauts on Apollo 8 orbited the moon on Christmas Eve in 1968, they read from the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. They were the first people to see our planet from an outsider's perspective. They saw the earth as a separate planet. As they looked back, they reflected on one of the biggest questions out there. How did life start in the first place? And God said, let there be light. Collectively, we've been trying to figure out how life started for thousands of years, and we've come up with all kinds of explanations. Scientologists believe modern-day humans are reincarnations of ancient souls from another planet. Those souls were brought to Earth millions of years ago and killed by a vindictive ruler named Xenu. According to the Maori in New Zealand, the Earth and sky were a couple. Their children pried them apart and created life in between. These stories are symbolically rich, but they lack scientific rigor. Now, researchers are searching for theories of life that explain what life is in the first place. Sarah Walker is one of those scientists. She's a cosmologist at Arizona State University and spends a lot of time thinking about the origins of life. So most of what I really try to think about is what is life and how would I actually, in some sense, build a life meter or make some kind of quantifiable criteria for for what life is. Her goal is to develop a theory that distinguishes life from non-life, but she also wants to know why life exists. Life isn't a natural extension of the laws of physics as we understand them. But Sarah suspects that there is an explanation out there, some theory that explains everything alive in the universe. And so for me, I feel like we have quantum, quantum mechanics and we have general relativity, and there must be some theory that's equivalently fundamental that explains life and what life is. Sarah thinks this theory of life probably has something to do with information. She says information ties all of life together. When information starts to take control of the system it's a part of, then it's getting closer to life. We met up with Sarah at a Gordon Research Conference in Biddeford, Maine, to talk about a unifying theory of life. We also talked about whether biologists will eventually discover new principles that will contribute to physics and ultimately our understanding of the universe. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. This is Big Biology. One of the challenges with studying the origins of life is that we don't even really know how to define what life is. Intuitively, we think it's easy to say that what's alive and what's not. Lions? Alive. Birds? Alive. Volcanoes? Boom. Not alive. But super cool. A way of thinking about it is that we talk about a lot of things that are really essential to biology, like metabolism and reproduction and compartmentalization. And so a lot of times when people are talking about life, they'll try to make these list definitions of life, like it has to have all these attributes. You probably made some of these lists in your first biology class. The textbooks usually say that life is organized into cells, that it uses energy, it has DNA, and can reproduce itself. The problem is these lists do a great job of describing life, but they don't really define it. Scientifically, what does it mean to say something is alive? Not having a definition of life makes it pretty hard, well, maybe impossible, to point to a moment in the past or some thing we observe on another planet or moon and say, that's it, that's life. There's always this problem with origins of life that you want to talk about this transition from non-life to life, 
but you have no criteria for what life is. And it, it, would, it would just drive me nuts because I'm supposed to be building models for chemical evolution and saying they're becoming more lifelike and I have no quantifiable, no quantifiable criteria. Um, and so this is why I think really um, that theory is critically important to origins of life and that that theory really must be one where you, you have some way of objectively saying what it is that you mean by when you say something is alive or not or something is life or not. Sarah's trying to find a life meter, something like a tricorder from Star Trek. You point it at something and alive or not alive. But life might not fall into neat categories like that. Sarah says it could look more like a spectrum. Um, and so for a long time, um, I think I was thinking that issue was more black and white than I, I do now that like maybe there was, because um, you could ask, is it continuous or, or is there some discontinuity where you'll go from something is not alive to something is alive? Um, and the way I think about it now um, is that um, when we're talking about life, life is an example of a particular kind of physical phenomena. And, I, and what I really think underlies it is that um, we really don't understand how information operates in the physical world. And if we understood the laws of information, they would really be the laws of life. Information. Sarah says that's what distinguishes life from non-life. In living things, information starts to control the system it's a part of. Non-life can also have information, but that information is in some sort of latent state. Um, and so I think the origin of life process is really this transition where you have systems that, where information is not really um, a prominent part of the physics of those systems to ones where it really is. And so we really have to understand how is it that information actually starts to gain control over the dynamics of the system and becomes an important part of it. And then most of the unfolding of the biosphere over the last four billion years, in my mind, is building um, increasingly um, extracted levels of informational structures. So basically, Sarah is saying that major transitions in the history of life all involve dramatic increases in the complexity of the information involved. Multicellular organisms use more information than single-celled ones, and modern cities with technology require more information than did clans of hunter-gatherers. you build up this hierarchy and so the kind of information that we manage today is very abstract not very tied to the physical substrate at all so you can compare like the information on your computer um, like you guys have text on the computer I'm looking at right now and um, you just read some of that text so like the people listening to this podcast are going to hear that and it's going to get translated into their brain so you think about all the different physical media that information went through and somehow it retains its properties of being information and meaning the same thing in this room as it does to the people that are going to be listening to this podcast now if you look at like DNA and like early information structures, it's really difficult actually to copy the information in DNA to other physical media, other chemistry, and do it um, like so. So the information there is really tied to the particular chemical, physical thing, um, and so. Um, uh, nowadays, we can copy DNA to other genetic polymers, but that required four billion years of evolution. Um, so, so if you give me, a, yeah, that information can be instantiated in other things. But early information was um, it, it became abstracted from from those physical things. But the level of abstraction and the number of different things that you could actually instantiate that information in, and what that information was doing as far as its control over the dynamics of a system, has just been increasing over biological evolution. But somehow that started at the origin of life. 
most theories in physics don't require a deep understanding of information, which might be why we don't yet have a fundamental theory of it. This is not to say that information plays no role in physics. It just plays such a different role in biology that we'll probably only get to a theory of life when we have a theory of information. But what I really care about is whether there is some unified explanation for all of life. And what I mean, like from the origin to understanding what the heck it is that we're doing as a technological civilization, because it's a very bizarre state for to, to actually like be a thing that exists. I, I like I, I mean, most people don't think about it, but like especially being a scientist, it's really weird that we do science. Like what is science? It's, it's such a weird thing. Like there's these like physical things on the surface of our planet. They're thinking about how the world works and <laughs> then they come up with theories and then those theories actually describe the world and then they can do new crazy things with that. Um, and the example I like to give is like launching satellites into space, which seems like kind of a mundane thing in our society. Now we do it all the time. But um, in order for that physical process to exist requires knowledge of the laws of gravitation, which means that you have to have a, a civilization or something like a technological civilization with sophisticated knowledge of, of how its world works, that it's understood the regularities associated with gravity, and then built technology to cause these transformations that can only happen if you have that knowledge. So that's a kind of information that allows this new thing to happen. Um, and so I think that's, a, that's very fundamental and very deep um, and so I think like if we had the proper theory for what these things are, what life is, that it would inform everything from what's happening in the chemistry inside cells to understanding, you know, the future of AI, because it, it's just about information and what information does. And so, so I would, I, I kind of um, would consider all of these different levels that we look at biology as examples of that physics. Um, and we don't think about it that way, but but that's actually the way I've organized my research group is they all work on like different, totally different biological systems. But the whole point is that looking at them from this unified perspective, hopefully we can get insights from one into another to try to figure out what that theory might even look like. And we don't have a clue what that theory looks like. So, but somebody has to jump in the deep end and pretend it exists and then see if it does. <laughs> Sarah compares the search for a universal theory of life to the search for the grand unified theory in physics. Physics has two major theories, quantum mechanics and general relativity. General relativity describes how the universe works at the largest scales, and quantum mechanics describes it at the smallest scales. But no one has yet been able to put them together, even though for a long time now, we've tried hard to put them into a single coherent framework. Sarah proposes that understanding the origins of life will only happen when biologists develop a theory of how information affects the real world. So, so that was really like part of the motivation. And I, I have become increasingly convinced that the origin of life problem is actually a problem of unification more than anything else. And usually we have major conceptual breakthroughs in physics when we have unifications of very different things. Um, and you can say that unification a lot of different ways. You might say, well, genetics and metabolism have to be unified in some kind of like way of understanding both at the same time. Okay, okay, this, this is where Sarah's ideas get really deep and also really exciting, but just too complicated to try to explain here in our short episode. If you want to hear more about the value of blending ideas of genetics and metabolism, what she calls digital and analog information, you have to check out the long episode. Back to Sarah. The way I talk about it in sort of like a much more abstract way is thinking about information and matter have to be unified or information and causation is, is another way I think about it. But but that there is some problem where we understand how matter and energy work and we, we understand information in the abstract, but we need to understand those two things as a unified concept. Unlike physicists, biologists tend to focus on the details of very complex systems. 
This approach has made it hard to generate the same broadly insightful theories that physicists have. Building theory from the bottom up only gets you so far. This doesn't mean that biology can't have such theories. Maybe so much complexity and so much hierarchical information has just made getting there particularly difficult. Top-down theory has been a big part of some biology, but not all of it, which is probably why we lack a cohesive, grand, unified theory of biology. Physicists, chemists have been incredibly good coming up with theory, and mm -hmm. biologists just take a different approach, like we sort yeah. of started. Um, do you think that there'll be theories in biology one day, as there are? I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so so I really think that biology is, the, or, well, in particular astrobiology, because I think you have to talk about observations on other planets, but biology is the next frontier in physics. So people think, people think about physics as being subject-specific, right? So it has to do with particles, it has to do with um, gravitational systems, or like these kind of things, and biology has nothing to do with physics. But biological systems physically exist, and I think about physics as a particular way of thinking about the world. It's just when you're, you're a physicist and you're thinking about things, you're trying to abstract them to a, a very universal um, and powerful explanation. And those tend to be very simple because you want something that can describe many systems. But getting to that level is really hard. And I think we just haven't gotten there with biology yet. But my hope is that we would. So, so the flip side of that question, I think, is um, are there going to be new physics that come out of out of biology? And you know, yes. so Schrodinger himself suggested that in yes, his life. Did, and yeah. and I think earlier in the conversation, you sort of alluded to that no, yeah, that, that so, you as a physicist are going to right. biology because there's like this density of yes. information that yes. just doesn't exist anywhere yes. else. So, I mean. What what are the new physics that are going to come? Right. So 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 my reason for working. So I was inspired by like the founders of quantum mechanics or like Einstein as a student. Like they opened up entirely new fields of physics. And so for me, I feel like we have quantum quantum mechanics and we have general relativity. And there must be some theory that's equivalently fundamental that explains life and what life is. Um, and I think that like going back to things I said earlier, I think that's information. And so we don't have a theory of information and what information is in the physical world and if we did it would be explanatory of what life is as is an implication that there's going to be some portion of biology and physics that are going to fuse in the future and that they're going to become sort of yeah. the, the same field really yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. neat Studying the origin of life on Earth raises a lot of questions about the origin of life on other planets, and Sarah has thought about how we might look for it. In our full conversation, we talked with her about how scientists look for life on other planets. How common is life in the universe? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I, I always answer this two ways. I answer the, like, optimistic, like Sarah, and the one that, like, you know, the reason I'm an astrobiologist is, yes, we will find life somewhere some one day. And then I have sort of agnostic uh, scientist Sarah that has absolutely no clue. The way Sarah thinks about life could also inform the way we approach artificial intelligence. She says that technology is really just another facet of life on Earth. People think, oh, we're going to be cyborgs in the future, or we're going to be robots. But I'm like, but we created them. It's like, you know, they're still part of our lineage. You can find our full conversation with Sarah on our website, bigbiology.org, or wherever you get this podcast. If you're a resident of Earth or an alien living on another planet, we'd love to hear from you about this episode, other episodes, or whatever else you'd like to hear about. You can reach out to us through the website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also, please think about donating to Big Biology on the website. We're now partly supported by the University of South Florida College of Public Health, and we thank them for that. 
But production is still largely a volunteer effort, so even small donations help us keep the episodes coming. In the next few weeks, we'll talk to Patty Brennan about genitalia and sexual conflict, and Mihaila Pavlichev about epistasis and pleiotropy in gene networks, which in non-jargon means basically complexity in biology. Thanks to Matt Blois for editing and production help. Gerard Sapes added their scripts to make sure they don't sound like academic papers. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey handle our social media channels, and Steve Lane manages our website. This is Matt Blois. Sound on today's episode comes from NASA, Daniel Simeon, AR Sound Effects, and Zap Splat. Music on today's episode comes from Pottington Bear and Sobrio.